Beyond Hospital Doors, Suicides Interventions. Sydney Regional Medical Center presents a new podcast series. We are taking our signature health and wellness profile and breaking it down into episodes where we will speak with our providers and top experts on issues that extend beyond hospital doors. This podcast, we feature Ms. Kristen Rose from our behavioral health team therapist and physician's assistant, Mr. Nathan Strasser from our ER on the topic of suicide in America, the most frequently asked questions on interventions of self-harm. Join us as we go beyond hospital doors. As I will be your host, this is Kimberly Dreyer. Welcome, Kristen and Nathan. Hi. Hello. September is Suicide Awareness Month. And as we begin talking about this particular topic, let's just go ahead and get it started. What are some of the warning signs about suicide? Diagnosis of any mental health problem is probably like the baseline indicator. 95% of people who have died by suicide were diagnosed with a mental illness. And there's kind of an underrated thing with eating disorders. It's the most fatal mental illness and actually a lot of them die by suicide. So mental illness of any sort is kind of the primary. But then mentioning suicide, anybody wanting to die by suicide usually mentions it. Putting personal affairs in order, kind of wrapping things up, like writing a will. Sometimes increased drug and alcohol use is another indicator that they might be having some suicidal thoughts. Any significant distressing life events, divorces, loss of a loved one, losing custody of children, getting fired from a job, I actually worked with a kid that he got put on academic probation, and that was kind of one of his risk factors. So looking for those types of things. Nathan, what do you see most commonly in the emergency room when someone comes into that ER about the warning signs? Yeah, I think Kristen definitely talked about the big ones that you see typically where uh, people have a history of other mental illness, social stressors such as loss of job, criminal legal issues, or familial or friend events such as loss of a loved one, or Mm -hmm. divorce or loss of children. A lot of things that I also see, substance misuse, um, definitely plays a role that I've seen in the ER. And then other other illnesses, not necessarily mental illnesses, such as like chronic pain or other health conditions can definitely play a weighing toll on you, both uh, mentally, financially, and it all kind of contributes to Mm. and brings things to a head. Dr. Thomas Joyner is a suicidologist, and he talks about burdensomeness as one of the two primary factors he talks about. And burdensomeness comes with, like, terminal illness, like disability, all of that kind of stuff. Assuming that someone is going through a hard time, do we assume that they are thinking about suicide? I say assume. Because if the warning signs are there, that's probably why you're assuming. I would definitely say it's on the table. I mean, everyone um, kind of you know, goes about their own problems in their own way. And sometimes when you're left alone to your own thoughts, you're your own biggest enemy and can definitely drive you down that path. You know, some of the conversations that we have talked about are some of the statistics regarding individuals and the age range. And what we do know is that men are most likely to use lethal means, but less likely to ask for help. This is part of the stigma. Do you guys care to comment on that? Yeah, I guess I could uh, leave off with that one, as I am a guy. Um, (laughs) So I think a lot of that is related to social stigma Mm -hmm. and just uh, years of, you know, social conditioning in which men were primarily taught as, you know, the doer at home and any problems that they have to keep to themselves. 
which again, like what mentioned earlier, you are your own worst enemy when it comes to your own thoughts. And if you have underlying issues going on at home that you feel uncomfortable sharing with, it could definitely spiral you down a path. And you're also less likely to help because that'll make you seem uh, weak or demasculine. Rural communities, that's a big issue, especially like farming and ag. I mean, it's a male predominant profession. Um, And I think there's a lot of cowboy up, tough it out, like John Wayne mentality kind of comes with that. And part of it is too, like farming and ag can be very isolating anyways. So they're in their heads a lot by themselves. You know, it's often, often talked about that people going through a hard time, it takes great courage to even reach out to someone And that is the hardest step in the world of isolation or I'm feeling alone. And what kind of recommendations do you have, both being a therapist and a physician's assistant, in in telling someone, helping them to move forward, where would be a good place for them to start? Recognizing when somebody is struggling, they are not always going to be the one that makes contact first. You're going to have to be the one that initiates the conversation. And you're going to have to initiate the conversation with a very like open and non-judgmental mindset because the second they feel judged, they will shut down. So just asking them if they're struggling, asking them if they've had thoughts of suicide and giving them a little bit of a lifeline of giving them resources and referrals, but also just saying, hey, let's check in more often. Like, let's go get coffee every now and then because that's thwarted sense of belonging really impacts somebody's suicidal thoughts. They can have a ton of people around them and connected to them, but they don't perceive it that way. So making that connection and being like, I am going to take time out of my day to connect with you and like text you, you know, have coffee, stop by your house. That kind of goes a long way. Yeah, um, from the ER side, I uh, definitely recognize how humbling an experience could be to go and seek for help. So I emphasize that strongly when they come to the ER seeking assistance and I recognize to them I always I'm telling telling them that hey I have a lot of respect for you for opening up to this these complete strangers I know you are feeling like you're being judged which is not the goal at all but um you know that's the first step to seeking help is just recognizing and being open with it and I always have a lot of respect for those people that are willing to be that open with me, especially when they don't, they've never met me before. I think it helps having a male asking that question sometimes, especially if it's a male or like an adolescent boy. I think that goes a long way Um, because they could have a female nurse come in and ask the same Mm -hmm. question and they're not going to say anything. Yep. And I think that goes vice versa. There's been a lot of times where um, I've had females that have come in with that and they have been a little bit more closed off to me, but they're way more open with my nurses Mm -hmm. just because I think it's just that relatability side. So I think it definitely goes both ways. But I definitely noticed a lot more times compared to some of my female coworkers that men are more willing to kind of open up to me because I can, they, they think that I get it the same way that they do just because we have, we grew up in a similar environment. You know, as we're talking about uh, resources and trying to find ways to promote health and safety and looking at therapists and MDs, Sometimes it takes about two months to see a therapist, and it's the interim time. And Nathan, they may have just seen you in the, in the ER, and we may have uh, sent them to possible individual to help them along through. Oftentimes, it's that interim time. 
of about two months on what do we do next, where do we go. And so one of the resources that often does play part is possibly seeking a doctor or setting up a doctor's appointment. Why is that important? Around here, I know at our physician's clinic, people feel really comfortable seeing Dr. Popovich, Dr. Allard, Nicole. Um, they feel comfortable checking in with them. And a lot of times they're actually the ones that hear about the suicidal ideation first because they have that relationship. And so having them be able to just make an appointment like every couple weeks to check in in the meantime is a good idea. I always tell people too, it doesn't just have to be connection to mental health. It can be just connection to social groups too. Find support groups, find um, a knitting club, find a church group to kind of at least get you through in the meantime um, to have some people around you to support you. Yeah, that is definitely an issue that we're finding with um, just... 21st century healthcare in America. I mean, there's a lot of demand and there's not enough resources to fill. I think we are making pretty great strides, but there's definitely a long way to go. Mm -hmm. So we definitely run into that situation a lot is what do we do in the interim before you can be seen by a licensed professional. I think one of the benefits that we have being in a rural community where we're at is that a lot of our patients are good friends with our physicians just on a personal level because they see them at the supermarket or at church or around, the, at, you know, going to high school football games or whatever it is. So I think that gives us an advantage where they feel more comfortable because they know these people. But I know that that's not the situation for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Kristen definitely uh, hit the nail on the head of just finding, even if you can't get in to see your doctor right away, just social groups or people in general, family, friends, anyone that, you can, that you're okay with being open and confiding yourself to. You know, and also, uh, in just touching base of if I can't get a therapist and don't know where to turn and my doctor happens to be a good resource, this is the time not only that the doctor and you have a conversation, but it's pulling out what started this, where did it begin, Do you have a family history of this? Have you ever been on an antidepressant? And can we talk about antidepressants Mm -hmm. as part of uh, the treatment plan or the plan of action Mm -hmm. uh, before we can get started into therapy? There's there's been a lot of the guessing game taken away from antidepressants now, which is nice. Um, There's genetic tests that instead of trying you on, on an antidepressant for months at a time, they can kind of narrow down what works. And that... There's some people that do just fine on an antidepressant without therapy, and that's okay. And some people prefer therapy. I think what we strive for in healthcare in general is just to come up with a personalized treatment plan that works best Mm -hmm. for you. And if that is just therapy alone and that's effective for you, then we will push for that. Um, If that's with medication to assist, then we will push Mm -hmm. for that as well. We ultimately want want what's in the best interest for the patient. I always tell people that when they come to the ER on any condition that, you know, hey, you're the you're the head coach. I'm your quarterback. I make suggestions and I can, you know, and I can tell you what I'm seeing reading the defense on. But ultimately, you're going to make the final decision on this. And I want to help you the best way that I can. So I'm going to show you here's the data that supports why this medicine works for this situation or why therapy works here. But ultimately, we want you to do what you're most comfortable with and what you think you're going to get the most effective treatment outcome. So we will kind of tailor a protocol that's best for you. And that's where providers come in because they're usually the first ones that hear about the suicidal ideation or the thoughts or or even just being depressed and going through a hard time. With wait lists, 
88 of 93 Nebraska counties are designated federally as behavioral health care shortage areas. So there's wait lists everywhere. And physicians and providers being able to encourage, hey, let's put in a referral for you now, or let's get you on wait lists now, kind of prevents the crisis to begin with. I tell people call around and get on wait lists before it's the crisis. I also mention the same thing. I, I usually give like, when in the interim, I'll give like four or five different numbers regionally, whether it's your office, mm-hmm. Kristen, or other ones in the air by, and just say, hey, call them all. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just try to get sit, seen by someone if you can't necessarily get in right away. And then you can always just call and cancel with those other appointments mm-hmm. later on once you're seen. I just say just, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cast your net pretty wide and mm-hmm. see what see what you catch. So we're finally uh, narrowing down to the end of the podcast, and I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, once I've gone through treatment or I just don't know what to do as a parent and or as an individual caring what we need to know is reducing the risk at home or a safety type net or a safety plan. What can you talk a little bit about? We had talked a little bit about some of the risks at home Mm -hmm. and maybe we could go into that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stigma with disclosing suicidal ideation and I think that's where people fear that like, if they talk about it in my office, I'm immediately gonna send them to the hospital for having suicidal thoughts. And that's not the case. I mean, that would be like if somebody went to Dr. Popovich with high blood pressure and immediately expected to be hospitalized. There's things and steps you can do to be safe at home and get better so that you don't have to be in that environment. So if somebody is just having passing thoughts and they can kind of cope with them on their own, we let family know usually that they're, they're okay, but this is something to be aware of. If it's a little bit more escalated, We talk about taking some safety precautions at home, um, locking up medicines and only giving it dose by dose, um, taking like sharp objects and putting them somewhere. If there's firearms in the home, finding somewhere safe for those firearms to be, whether that be with a friend. I know that the sheriff's office will come and hold them for a little while and people don't always feel comfortable with that. So finding them someone you can trust just to hold them until that person feels safe at home. I think Kristen definitely, again, kind of touched on a lot of the big red flag issues that you'll see um, at home. And uh, that, another thing that we do in the ER, because we also, you know, our goal is to not hospitalize every single person that comes to the ER because that's not necessarily the best treatment plan for some people. We also um, have safety plans that we fill out um, individually with the patient whether it's they're comfortable doing it with me or with one of my nurses, we walk through and kind of discuss how we want to handle things at home. And, you know, we'll get family on board if they're comfortable with that and kind of coming up with a game plan of, all right, here's what we're going to try to reduce exposures at home. And then here are situations where we should come back and seek further assistance if mm-hmm. necessary. You know, one last big question, is it okay to ask someone if they are suicidal or at self-harm? Yes. Definitely. And I... There needs to be some, I mean, you have to be cautious when talking about it and make sure that you have the time for that person. You can't just pull them aside somewhere and be like, are you feeling okay? Like, do you feel like hurting yourself? And then be like, okay, well, I got to pick up my kids from school. Um, Make sure you have the time and don't make promises you cannot keep to that person. Don't tell that person that you're going to be over at their house every day if you can't do it. So. Yep. Uh, Definitely. um, I agree that you'd, want to ask those those hard-hitting questions. They are hard-hitting, and they are tough to discuss with people, and it takes a lot of practice and repetition um, to 
you know, be able to handle those conversations because they're mentally taxing on not only the, not only the person thinking those thoughts, but on everyone around them. It's hard to hear those words. You know, if you're a person's mother or wife or husband and you're hearing your significant other say that in front of them to the provider, that's very tough to hear. It's a very uh, delicate conversation to have, but it's definitely necessary because you really want to understand where they're coming from and get in their shoes as best you can in order to help them the way that the help that they deserve. Nathan and Kristen, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. If you know someone in crisis, you can call several numbers. This includes the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK-8255 or 988. Mm -hmm. Any others? So the 988 is new. The other line will only be available for, I think, the next year until the states finish rolling out the 988 number. And there are some concerns with 988 that I've heard. People are like, oh, it's not going to be anonymous. They're going to send police to my house. Um, Those aren't true. You can call it anonymously. And you have to give consent for anybody, like a mobile crisis team, to come to you, Um, which is nice. You can just have a conversation on the phone with those people. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode of Beyond Hospital Doors. To learn more about Sydney Regional Medical Center and services offered, visit us at sydneyrmc.com or visit us on our Facebook page or you may call us at 308-254-5825. Thank you for your time and thank you for your continued support. This is Kimberly Dreyer.